Well, hey, good morning. It is good to be together, to worship, to do what we do. Grace just simply, we believe, it's important for God's people to come together, to worship together, to open his word, and then to ask, God, what are you speaking to my life? What are you inviting me into? How is his word shaping and forming us? And so you're going to want a Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, it's going to be real easy to find where we're starting because we're starting at the beginning. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If you need a Bible, though, we have plenty of them. There will be some people walking around. Just slip up a hand. We will get a Bible to you so you can follow along. But as you are finding your way there to Genesis 1, I want to kind of reiterate what Zach said, is that not only are we excited about launching back into a new school year and Lug, his life, true north, all getting off the ground, especially after such a crazy, weird last year, to finally be back together, investing in our kids, reaching out into our schools. But even just to, to reiterate, that isn't just a part of what we do at Grace. That is what we do at Grace. And we are about reaching the next generation. And we believe it is the responsibility of every generation to reach the next generation. That's why our entire high school ministry model is about empowering high school students to disciple middle school students. Because we believe that, that leaders are made and developed at a young age so that kids would go off to college. They're not going to college going, hey, what's here for me? They're going to college going, hey, what can I do here? Like that's the kind of young men and women we want to see discipled out of grace. And so I say that because that's not something we can do uh, without you. I, I know a lot of times Wednesday night kids' life equals Wednesday night date night. Amen, parents, right? But we have a ton of kids, and so we need help. And, uh, and I can promise you not only will it be uh, an opportunity for you to impact, to invest in a young life, but also it will change your life. I can't tell you, uh, doing youth ministry uh, for so many years and working out in the schools through Young Life, the impact of being with a young guy and watching the light goes, go off in his eyes when he realized, oh, wait, Jesus did that for me? Totally setting them on a completely different trajectory. And even personally, I just remember, when I was a kid, uh, my Sunday school teacher, when I was in middle school, and this was before I knew Jesus, um, was, uh, or, you know, gave my life to Jesus, uh, was a guy named Sonny. Amazing man. He was an executive at Chick-fil-A. I'm sure I was absolutely the worst kid for him to try to be the Sunday school teacher of, and I'm just thankful he didn't kill me as a sixth grader. But, uh, but I, I don't honestly remember anything that he taught, but I just remember him being faithful. And showing up. And the reason that mattered is, fast forward a few years, I graduated from college, moved back into town, starting doing ministry, uh, and uh, had gotten engaged, and realized, I don't know what I'm doing. And I need somebody to mentor me, somebody that will meet with me. And so who did I think to call? Sonny. And I asked, I was like, I don't know if you remember me, I was that punk kid in your sixth grade Sunday school class, but would you be willing to just get breakfast with me every now and then? And for two years, once a month, we would meet at Chick-fil-A and just talk about life and marriage and ministry. And the amazing thing was, is again, I don't remember what he said when I was a little kid. What I remember, though, is him being faithful and showing up. And so seven years later, who is it that I'm reaching out to for help? And so I say that because we have all these young lives 
that God is entrusting to us, the next generation. And there's this movement happening. We feel it in our schools, in this community of God raising up young men and women. And our prayer isn't just simply that we would see, uh, that we would just see uh, young men and women come to know Jesus and be discipled in their faith, but that we would raise up a generation of spiritual fathers and mothers. That's what we're about. And so if you want to be a part of what Grace is doing, yeah, we're going to do Sunday morning, and it's going to be great when we come together. But what we're really doing is we're going after the next generation. We're going after city transformation. We're about seeing restored people restore places. And that was the vision that launched us 10 years ago when we planted the church, and it's the vision that compels us forward even today. There is value in coming together in this Sunday rhythm. But what's going to change your life and what's going to change this community is what happens the rest of the week. And so we're not always going to have the prettiest productions and, you know, the, the slickest shows and the most eloquent sermons. But what I can promise you is if you become a part of this movement, we're going to change some things. We're going to see God break some generational cycles. And we really believe that God can bring about the restoration of a place through his people. And so we're on the verge of, you know, the grand opening of that Denton Hall, that rock gym over across the way. And it's one of my favorite buildings. I love the story of Denton Hall. I know a number of you actually went to school here, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, which is amazing to think about. But um, so Denton Hall, if you don't know, was built in the 1930s. And uh, Monroe at the time didn't have a gym. And so there was this young 20-something principal that had in his mind, hey, we need a gym. And so he recruited the student body, a bunch of high school dudes and their dads, over Christmas break, 1932, to come build that gym. We have newspaper articles from the 30s that say, hey, tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're going to hear the sound of saws and hammers as our boys build their new gymnasium. Now, that's an education, amen? Got the granite from Stone Mountain, brought it over in uh, horse-drawn wagons. We have pictures of them parked out front of Denton Hall. But then over the years, it was neglected, abandoned, dilapidated. The roof caved in. A lot of people thought we should just bulldoze the whole thing. But what I love is this picture, almost 100 years old, of the transformation of the place, the belief that we can transform a city, the empowerment of the next generation. And so for us, that's just not a building. It's a symbol of what God wants to do in hearts and lives, in your life, through your life, for a place. And so it made sense as we're on the verge, on the beginning of this school year, and, and for us as a church family, the beginning of a new season of life and ministry, that we would actually go back to the very beginning. So when we started kind of renovating this space, if you walk through here, you know it was, you know, dusty and musty and everything that was metal was torn out of here and smelled like bat poop. I mean, it was a mess. And so one of the first things we did is we went and we found the old blueprints, like the original blueprints of this building. Because if we're going to restore something, if we're going to go back, then we kind of need to know what it was meant to be from the beginning. And so we found the old plans, electrical and heating and the foundations and the walls. And we started looking at this thing and then reimagining what could this thing be again. And so it felt right that we wouldn't just go back to the early 1900s and the restoration of a building. That we would go back to the beginning, to the very beginning of things, the original blueprints. And ask that question, 
what kind of life did you create us to experience? What did God intend from the beginning? I mean, if we're going to throw this phrase around, pursuing God's heart for the restoration of all things. I mean, that's what we say our church's mission is. Restoring hearts, restoring lives, restoring families, restoring marriages. I know tonight, Reengage is launching that, that marriage ministry. Yeah, I think there's like a dozen couples signed up to be a part of that. Not too late, right, to, to join in tonight. But seeing the restoration of marriages and families. But what are we restoring them to? Like, what, what's the original blueprint? And so over the next several weeks, we're going to dive into this book called Genesis. And I know some of these passages that we'll read are really familiar passages. My hope is that God will breathe sort of a, a fresh word into you, a fresh way of seeing his word in your life. So Genesis chapter 1. Now, I will say before I read this that, that we're not going to really get into the subject of science. We're not going to debate the merits of, uh, you know, seven-day literal creation and all those fun conversations that we can have over a cup of coffee. And we're not going to get into the issues of, like, textual criticism and, and composition, who wrote it and when and how did it come about. Really, we're just going to focus simply on this. God, what do you want us to know? <laughs> Like, what does this text reveal about who we are and the, and the kind of life that you made us to live? So let's start here. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, and that word Genesis is simply that, beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the, from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So I'm going to pause right there before we go any further. Because just in those first few sentences, I think that we can get the foundation of the entire rest of the Bible. Not just even the rest of the Bible. Actually, the rest of human history is rooted in those first few sentences. Honestly, I believe that all of psychology, all of sociology, all of theology can be understood in just the first few chapters of the Bible. But what do we see? What is first and foremost, what is primary that we get this morning. And number one is this. There is a creator. There is a creator. And if there's a creator, then that means that this is his creation. And if he's the creator that it means that he knows best how his creation was intended to work. 
how life was meant to live. And if he's the creator, it means that he has authority. He's the king. He's in charge of this whole thing. If he brought it into being, if there really is a God and he really created this thing, then it means that he knows best, but also it means that he's in charge. But we find out real quickly that he is not some tyrant, some evil dictator, but he's good. He's good. That he brings order out of chaos. That first image of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, that ancient symbol of the seas being this place of, of confusion and darkness and chaos, the uncontrollable, the thing that will destroy you. And even over the chaos, we see that God reigns and he brings order out of the chaos. He speaks light out of the darkness. And then we come to find that he brings life out of the barrenness. And so even we could just pause right, stop right there. In your own life, as you sit here, Walton County, August 2021. Like, what are the places in your life right now where the God who made you, the God who knows you, the God who knows best how life is meant to work, where you need him to speak order into your chaos, light into your darkness, life into places of barrenness, like, where is that confusion? Where is that crisis? What is that thing that, that wakes you up anxious in the middle of the night? Because if there is a God, and he actually created all things, and he is good, then he is the one that we can go to to figure out how life works. Now, why do I spend so much time on that? It's a pretty obvious thought. If you've been to church ever, then that's, you know, Sunday School 101 right there. Because you live, you and I live in a world we are swimming in a sea that is echoing, shouting the exact opposite of that. The world we're living in is convincing us, the primary message is that there is no God, and in fact, that we are products of random chance, that enough particles collided over a long enough time that brought you out of a series of chaos and crises and coincidence to be sitting here right now. And if that's true, if you're just simply the product of random chance over billions of collisions over billions of years, then it's up to you to make life work, to make meaning out of your life, to, make significant, to bring significance into your life. And in fact, not only that, not only are you simply the product of a billion random collisions and coincidences, but the primary mechanism that actually brought you into being to be sitting right here is the survival of the fittest. So you got to be strong to survive. you got to fight to make it work. you got to make life work on your own. It's up to you. Maximize pleasure, minimize pain, take care of your own, fight for what you have, and fight to keep it. That's the world that we inhabit. And though we can easily say, oh, no, 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 I know there's a God. I know he created all things. You know, we get wet from the water we swim in. And there's ways that even the life that we live is being shaped and shifted by the culture around us. And so in this beginnings, we pull out these original blueprints. is this invitation to reexamine our hearts and our minds and go, okay, God, where am I living as if you don't exist? Where do I feel like it's up to me to make my life work? 
Where do I feel alone in this thing? Lost, struggling. Where, does it, where have I become to believe that I have got to fight for myself? So we see that God is the creator, that he's good, and that he makes himself known. It's his voice that brings existence. It's his, world, his words that create worlds. He's powerful. And if he's the eternal God that is eternally speaking, then that means that his word is still going forth into our world today. Where are the places that you need God to speak into your life? And does he care enough to? But God, if he's not only is the authority, he's also the expert. He knows life best if he made it. And so the question becomes, who are you going to listen to? Where are you going for answers? How to be a parent? How to be a spouse? How to make it? How to get ahead? How to find peace? Significance? So I was thinking about it this way. I have a friend, Russ, who uh, he builds out custom cars. He'll buy this like old piece of junk and then spend several years working on it and end up this beautiful, you know, craft of a car that he'll that he'll end up creating. But let's say that you have this custom car and it breaks down. Who are you going to take it to? So there's three options. I mean, multiple choice, you choose. So number one, you have this beautiful custom car. It's broken down. You've got to take it to someone to get it fixed. Are you going to, A, your uncle, who doesn't even really know how to change a tire, but he does get online every day and post really uh, angry posts about how every mechanic in town is a crook and a liar. Two, there's this guy down the road, and he's known, actually he spent a little bit of time in prison for stealing cars and then chopping them up to sell them for parts. But he's told you that he's changed, and he's going to treat you right. And his chop shop, I'm sorry, his mechanic shop, Looks really great. State-of-the-art tools and free coffee. Or the guy who designed your car, put it together piece by piece, knows it inside and out. And his mechanic shop, it's not very sexy or cool. It's a lot older and used. And his tools are really well-worn, but he knows what he's doing. Who are you going to take your car to? Right? I mean, it's rhetorical, dumb question, obvious. So... And most of us don't have custom cars. So I was thinking about it this way. Let's say you have a child or a friend, a spouse, that ends up with this rare sickness that could actually end up being fatal. And they need a special treatment. Got three options again. Bear with me. Here you go. Who are you going to take them to see? One, you got this friend. And they've never really been to medical school or actually had any official training, but they've written some articles online and they've posted some really passionate Facebook posts. Or there's this guy. He was a doctor, actually. But he's currently spending 40 years to life for medical malpractice because he injured and killed so many of his patients. 
But the good news is, is that he has an opening during visitation hour that you can go see him in prison. Or the doctor who graduated top of their field actually discovered the disease, found the cure, and has saved thousands of lives. Who are we going to go see? Right? Okay, that's, it's a joke, obviously. Appreciate the laughter, or none. But honestly, go back to your last week. Who are we listening to? Who are you going to? Your angry uncle? Your passionate friend? CNN, Fox News? Where are we going to figure out what's going on in the world? Who's answering the questions that we're asking? Whose solutions are we taking in? The guy in prison? So if there's a God and he created all things, then he knows best how life is meant to work. Who are you listening to? Now, I'm not going to go through uh, verse by verse the next several days. I, I encourage you this week to actually spend some time diving into Genesis 1. There's a bunch of beautiful truths that can come out of here. And as I say all the time, it's way more important what you and God get together in his word than anything that I could say from up here. But I will summarize the next five days of creation for you. What we see is that there's God who speaks and the world comes into existence. But there's this pattern, this rhythm that's set up that on, that on one day that he forms and then at the end of the week he fills what he forms. And so you got day one where you got God creating day and night. And then day four, he creates the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. On day two, you got God creating the waters above and, the, uh, and below on day five, the birds for the heavens and the fish for the sea. Day three, God creates the land and the vegetation. And then day six, God creates the land, animals, and, and ultimately humanity. That God forms and then he fills. So we discover that in creation that God is good, but also that there's order and there's rhythm. That there's purpose and there's meaning. And one of my favorite phrases in chapter in Genesis 1 is actually uh, verse 12. That the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I love that as God chose to reveal his creation, that he didn't just say that he created trees and plants, but intentionally that they were seed-bearing trees, fruit-bearing plants. In other words, that his creation is packed with potential. That God knew from the beginning of time that out of, out of sand, we could get iPhones. That out of water and wind, we could get power. That God knew that in his creation, in this good world that he created, with purpose and meaning, that he invited us to experience, to cultivate, that he packed it with potential to discover. But then creation builds. 
And we finally get to this pinnacle moment as if everything that God is forming and then filling is preparing for this final act of creation. In fact, even the language is, is sort of building this momentum as you see over and over again, and God said, let there be, and God said, let there be, and it was so, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and then you get to verse 26. Then God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, but then God said, let us create man and our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. A couple weeks ago, I told you the story about the cockroach in the car with my wife. So there's some creeping things that I think some of us wish that he had not created, but apparently we have dominion over them all. So next time you see that cockroach, just rebuke it in the name of Jesus. <laughs> so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This pinnacle act of creation. If you imagine this as a symphony, the crescendo of God's work. Humanity created in his image. That what sets us apart as human beings from the rest of all of his creation, as beautiful and as good as it is, as packed with potential as it is, is that we were created to reflect the image of God. To reflect his power and goodness, his creativity, his life. That we are image bearers of the king. And if that's true, if there's a God who created all things, that brings life out of the barrenness, light out of darkness, order out of chaos, that is good, that gives purpose and meaning, and then the greatest purpose, the, the most significant meaning that he reveals in the creation of his humanity. Then what does that mean that we bear the image of the king? Well, there's something here about identity about who you are, who you were made to be. One of the most burning questions in our culture today is this question of identity. Who am I? And we discover 
just a couple of chapters in, that it doesn't take one generation for us to screw this whole thing up. For us to decide to live life on our own terms, to set God aside as king and make ourselves our own little kings. To determine for ourselves how life is best lived. And now we live in a world of, after thousands of years and billions of people, the consequences of our decisions to live life on our own terms apart from God. Our own selfish little existence. Eking out our own survival. And you know that personally, right? Like we don't have to go to the headlines to know the cost of our own rebellion, of our demand for independence. But there's this, still this echo of Eden in our souls. And we've come to a place now where we've tried to, to convince ourselves we're our own little kings, which means that the, the highest value, the greatest meaning of life is, is to determine for yourself who you are. To create, to curate your own identity based on how you feel. The problem with that is that if you're responsible for creating your own identity, then you're also responsible for maintaining it. And that's exhausting. I mean, how many hours a day do we spend thinking about what other people think about us? And trying to craft, craft whatever image it is that we want to present to the world. Trying to present our life in such a way that we're, we're giving off a certain sort of image that this is who I am based on how I feel. But Christianity makes this audacious claim that, that it, we, don't, we don't achieve our identity, we receive our identity. That we can let go of, of our, our needs and our demands, our cravings, our, 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 our insecurity of trying to figure out who we are because there's a God who actually made us, who knows us and calls us his own. And that he speaks your identity, who you are. And what he says about you matters more than what anyone else says about you, even yourself. Do you believe that? Because if he's the creator, and you are his most precious act of creation, then your identity isn't something that you curate on Instagram. Your identity is something that you receive from him. And our lives will be chaos, barren, and dark when we're trying to figure it out on our own. So even as we sit here right now, the God who eternally speaks, whose word created our existence, who does he say that you are? Who are you to him? And first and foremost, You bear the image of the God who made you. But we can't reflect what we don't see. We're not our own little gods. We're reflections of the one true God. This revelation of the Bible, it's not just radical for the world now. It's always been radical. Going all the way back to the beginning of when this would have been written, 
There's other ancient texts that, talk, that use this image of, I mean, this, this language of the image of God. But every other text, take the ancient Sumerians or the Babylonians that talk about the image of God, the image of God is reserved for one person, and that's the king, which is really convenient if you're the king. You represent God. Your word is. But here comes God saying, no, 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 it's not just the king that bears my image. It's all humanity. Every human, rich and poor, from the beginning and the end, from the east and the west, every human being we encounter carries the dignity, the value, the image of God. How would it change our lives if we actually view the world that way? If they weren't just dumb Democrats or evil Republicans, idiots from California or nobodies from Georgia, but human beings. We're gonna have to go national, right? That's annoying. We're all tired of that anyway. Let's just go to our neighborhood. That coworker that annoys you. That neighbor down the street that was a jerk to you. How would it change our lives if first we were rooted in this identity that we are God's people? That we belong to a good God who knows best how life is to work. And then everyone we encounter also carries his image. What is this kind of life that God created us for? So if we're creating the image of God, yes, there is the significance of identity, who we really are. But also it carries this idea of relationship. That first and foremost, we belong to him. It carries this idea of responsibility. That he's entrusted us to steward the creation that he's given us dominion over. Excuse me. <clears throat> and we'll <clears throat> excuse me. We'll dive into some of that over the next several weeks. But for today, as we continue on in worship, the question is simply this. What would it change for me? If I really believed that there's a God who created everything, that created me in his image and every other person that I encounter, and where are the places in my life that I'm living as if he doesn't exist? Ultimately, God would show up in the form of a human named Jesus. John chapter 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That the Word created all things, and all things that have been created were created through him. And then it goes on to say that that Word that created all things, that in him was life and light, and that life was the light of all, all men. It goes on to say that 
that word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, dwells among us full of grace and truth. That that creator God who created all things and created humanity to be in relationship with us came in the form of a human to reconnect us back to the heart of God in the person of Jesus. To restore all things back to himself. That Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And that it's through him that our hearts can be reconnected back to the heart of our Father. That even right now, God is wanting to speak into your life in this moment. To bring healing and hope. To restore your soul. What is the God that created you? That knows best how life once is meant to work? What does he want you to know? So Lord Jesus, I invite you even into this space. These old familiar words, God, but that change everything. Lord, I pray even right now, will you call to mind the places that we are living as if you don't exist, as if you're not good or you don't care. God, where are the places that we're going to others or trying to determine for ourselves who we are and what we were made for? God, is there anywhere that we're running from you? So Lord, I pray for each person here, including myself, God. Will you call us back to yourself? Will you restore our hearts? Will you reveal any lie that we're believing and replace it with your truth? God, what do you want us to know? What do you want us to do?